Chapter Five of Mary Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. Mary Barton by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskill. Chapter Five The Mill on Fire. Jem Wilson to the Rescue. Learned he was, nor bird nor insect flew, but he its leafy home and history knew. Nor wild flower decked the rock, nor moss the well, but he its name and qualities could tell. Elliot. There is a class of man in Manchester, unknown even to many of the inhabitants, whose existence will probably be doubted by many, who yet may claim kindred with all the noble names that science recognizes. I said in Manchester, but they are scattered all over the manufacturing districts of Lancashire. In the neighborhood of Oldham, there are weavers, common hand-loom weavers, who throw the shuttle with unceasing sound, though Newton's Principia lies open on the loom to be snatched at in work hours, but reveled over in meal-times or at night. Mathematical problems are received with interest and studied with absorbing attention by many the broad-spoken, common-looking factory hand. It is perhaps less astonishing that the more popularly interesting branches of natural history have their warm and devoted followers among this class. There are botanists among them, equally familiar with either the lineum or the natural system who know the name and habitat of every plant within a day's walk from their dwellings, who steal the holiday of a day or two when any particular plant should be in flower, and tying up their simple food in their pocket-handkerchiefs, set off with simple purpose to fetch home the humble-looking weed. There are entomologists, who may be seen with a rude-looking net, ready to catch any winged insect, or a kind of dredge, with which they rake the green and slimy pools, practical, shrewd, hard-working men who pour over every new specimen with real scientific delight. Nor is it the common and more obvious divisions of entomology and botany that alone attract these earnest seekers after knowledge. Perhaps it may be owing to the great annual town holiday of Whitsome Week, so often falling in May or June, that the two great beautiful families of Ephemeridae and Phrygianidae have been so much and so closely studied by Manchester workmen, while they have, in a great measure, escaped general observation. If you will refer to the preface to Sir J. E. Smith's Life, I have it not by me, or I would copy you the exact passage, you will find that he names a little circumstance corroborative of what i have said being on a visit to roscoe of liverpool he made some inquiries from him as to the habitat of a very rare plant said to be found in certain places in lancashire 
Mr. Roscoe knew nothing of the plant, but stated that if any one could give him the desired information, it would be a hand-loom weaver in Manchester, whom he named. Sir J. E. Smith proceeded by boat to Manchester, and on arriving at that town, he inquired of the porter who was carrying his luggage if he could direct him to so-and-so. "'Oh, yes,' replied the man. "'He goes a bit in my way.' and on further investigation it turned out that both the porter and his friend the weaver were skilful botanists, and able to give Sir J. E. Smith the very information which he wanted. Such are the tastes and pursuits of some of the thoughtful, little-understood workingmen of Manchester. And Margaret's grandfather was one of these. He was a little wirily-looking old man, who moved with a jerky motion, as if his limbs were worked by a string, like a child's toy, with the dun-coloured hair lying thin and soft at the back and sides of his head. His forehead was so large it seemed to overbalance the rest of his face, which had, indeed, lost its natural contour by the absence of all the teeth. The eyes absolutely gleamed with intelligence, so keen, so observant, you felt as if they were almost wizard-like. Indeed, the whole room looked not unlike a wizard's dwelling. Instead of pictures were hung rude wooden frames of impaled insects. The little table was covered with cabalistic books, and beside them lay a case of mysterious instruments, one of which Job Legg was using when his granddaughter entered. On her appearance, he pushed his spectacles up so as to rest midway on his forehead, and gave Mary a short, kind welcome. But Margaret he caressed as a mother caresses her firstborn, stroking her with tenderness and almost altering his voice as he spoke to her. Mary looked round on the odd, strange thing she had never seen at home, and which seemed to her to have a very uncanny look. "'Is your grandfather a fortune-teller?' whispered she to her new friend. "'No,' replied Margaret, in the same voice, "'but you are not the first as have taken him for such. He is only fond of such things as most folks know nothing about. And do you know aught about them, too?' "'I know a bit about some of the things Grandfather is fond of, just because he's fond of them. I tried to learn about them. "'What things are these?' said Mary, struck with the weird-looking creatures that crawled around the room and their roughly made glass cases. But she was not prepared for the technical names which Job Legg pattered upon her ear, on which they fell like hail on a skylight, and the strange language only bewildered her more than ever. Margaret saw the state of the case and came to the rescue. "'Look, Mary, at this horrid scorpion!' He gave such a fright. I am all of a twitter yet when I think of it. Grandfather went to Liverpool one whitsome week, to go strolling about the docks and pick up what he could from the sailors, who often bring some queer thing or another from the hot countries they go to. And so he sees a chap with a bottle in his hand, like a druggist's physic bottle. And says, Grandfather, what have you gotten there? So the sailor holds it up, and Grandfather knew it was a rare kind of scorpion, not common even in the East Indies, where the man came from, and says he, How did you catch this fine fellow? For he wouldn't be taken for nothing, I'm thinking. 
and the man said as how when they were unloading the ship he'd found him lying behind a sack of rice and he thought the cold had killed him for he was not squashed nor injured a bit he did not like to part with any of the spirit out of his grog to put the scorpion in but slipped him into the bottle knowing there were folks anow who would give him something for him so grandfather gave him a shilling two shillings interrupted job leg and a good bargain it was well grandfather came home as proud as punch and pulled the bottle out of his pocket but you see the scorpion were doubled up and grandfather thought i could fairly see how big he was so he shakes him out right before the fire and a good warm one it was for i was ironing i remember i let off ironing and stooped down over to him to look at him better and grandfather got a book and began to read how this very kind were the most poisonous and vicious species how their bite were often fatal and then went on to read how people who were bitten got swelled and screamed with pain i was listening hard but as it fell out i never took my eyes off the creature though i could not a told i was watching it suddenly it seemed to give a jerk and before i could speak it gave another and in a minute it was as wild as it could be running at me just like a mad dog what did you do asked mary me while I jumped first on a chair, and then all the things I'd been ironing on the dresser, and I screamed for Grandfather to come up by me, but he did not hearken to me. Why, if I'd come up by thee, who'd a caught the creature, I should like to know? Well, I begged Grandfather to crush it, and I had the iron right over it once, ready to drop, but Grandfather begged me not to hurt it in that way, so I couldn't think what he'd have, for he dropped round the room as if he were sore afraid, for all he begged me not to injure it. At last he goes to the kettle, and lifts up the lid and peeps in. What on earth is he doing that for, thinks I? He'll never drink his tea with a scorpion running free and easy about the room. Then he takes the tongs, and he settles his spectacles on his nose, and in a minute he lifted the creature up by the leg and dropped him into the boiling water. "'And did that kill him?' said Mary. "'Ah, sure enough. He boiled for longer time than Grandfather liked, though, but I was so afeard of his coming round again. I ran to the public-house for some gin, and Grandfather filled the bottle, and then we poured off the water and picked him out of the kettle and dropped him into the bottle, and he were there about twelve months. "'What brought him to life at first? asked Mary. "'Why, you see, he were never really dead, only torpid. That is, dead, asleep with cold, and our good fire brought him round.' "'I'm glad Father does not care for such things,' said Mary. "'Are you?' Well, I'm often downright glad Grandfather is so fond of his books and his creatures and his plants. It does my heart good to see him so happy, sorting them all at home, and so ready to go in search of more whenever he's a spare day. Look at him now. He's gone back to his books, and he'll be as happy as a king, working away till I make him go to bed. It keeps him silent, to be sure, but so long as I see him earnest and pleased and eager, what does that matter?' then when he has his talking bouts you can't think how much he has to say dear grandfather you don't know how happy we are mary wondered if the dear grandfather heard all this for margaret did not speak in an undertone but no he was far too deep and eager in solving a problem he did not even notice mary's leaving 
and she went home with a feeling that she had that night made the acquaintance of two of the strangest people she had ever saw in her life margaret so quiet so commonplace until her singing powers were called forth so silent from home so cheerful and agreeable at home and her grandfather so very different from any one mary had ever seen margaret had said he was not a fortune-teller but she did not know whether to believe her to resolve her doubts she told the story of the evening to her father who was interested by her account and curious to see and judge for himself opportunities are not often wanting where inclination goes before and ere the end of the winter mary looked upon margaret almost as an old friend the latter would bring her work when mary was likely to be at home in the evenings and sit with her and job legg would put a book and, and his pipe in his pocket and just step round the corner to fetch his grandchild ready for a talk if he found barton in ready to pull out pipe and book if the girls wanted him to wait and john was still at his club in short ready to do whatever would give pleasure to his darling margaret i do not know what points of resemblance or dissimilitude for this joins people as often as that attracted the two girls to each other margaret had the great charm of possessing good strong common sense and do you not perceive how involuntarily this is valued it is so pleasant to have a friend who possesses the power of setting a difficult question in a clear light whose judgment can tell what is best to be done and who is so convinced of what is wisest best that in consideration of the end all difficulties in the way diminished people admire talent and talk about their admiration but they value common sense without talking about it and often without knowing it so mary and margaret grew in love one toward the other and mary told many of her feelings in a way she had never done before to any one most of her foibles were made known to margaret but not all there was one cherished weakness still concealed from every one it concerned a lover not beloved but favoured by fancy a gallant handsome young man but not beloved yet mary hoped to meet him every day in her walks blushed when she heard his name and tried to think of him as her future husband and above all tried to think of herself as his future wife alas poor mary bitter woe did thy weakness work thee she had other lovers one or two would gladly have kept her company but she held herself too high they said jem wilson said nothing but loved on and on ever more fondly he hoped against hope he would not give up for it seemed like giving up life to give up thought of mary he did not dare to look at any end of all this the present so that he saw her touched the hem of her garment was enough surely in time such deep hope would beget love he would not relinquish hope and yet her coldness of manner was enough to daunt any man and it made jem more despairing than he would acknowledge for a long time even to himself but one evening he came round by barton's house a willing messenger for his father and opening the door saw margaret sitting asleep before the fire she had come in to speak to mary and worn out by a long working watching night she fell asleep in the genial warmth 
an old-fashioned saying about a pair of gloves came into jem's mind and stepping gently up he kissed margaret with a friendly kiss she awoke and perfectly understanding the thing she said for shame of yourself jem what would mary say lightly said lightly answered she'd no but say practice makes perfect and they both laughed but the words margaret had said rankled in jem's mind would mary care would she care in the very least they seemed to call for an answer by night and by day and jem felt that his heart told him mary was quite indifferent to any action of his still he loved on and on ever more fondly mary's father was well aware of the nature of jem wilson's feeling for his daughter but he took no notice of them to any one thinking mary full young yet for the cares of married life and unwilling too to entertain the idea of parting with her at any time however distant but he welcomed jem at his house as he would have done his father's son whatever were his motives for coming and now and then admitted the thought that mary might do worse when her time came than marry jem wilson a steady workman at a good trade a good son to his parents and a fine manly-spirited chap at least when mary was not by for when she was present he watched her too closely and too anxiously to have much of what john barton called spunk in him it was towards the end of february in that year and a bitter black frost had lasted for many weeks that keen east wind had long since swept the streets clean though in a gusty day the dust would rise like pounded ice, and many people's faces, quite smart with the cold force with which it blew against them. Houses, sky, people, and everything looked as if a gigantic brush had washed them all over with a dark shade of Indian ink. There was some reason for this grimy appearance on human beings, whatever there might be for the dun looks of the landscape for soft water had become an article not even to be purchased, and the poor washerwoman might be seen vainly trying to procure a little by breaking the thick grey ice that coated the ditches and ponds in the neighbourhood. People prophesied a long continuance to this already lengthened frost, said the spring would be very late, no spring fashions required, no summer clothing purchased for a short uncertain summer indeed there was no end to the evil prophesied during the continuance of that bleak east wind mary hurried home one evening just as daylight was fading from mrs simmons with her shawl held up to her mouth and her head bent as if in deprecation of the meeting wind so she did not perceive margaret till she was close upon her at the very turning into the court bless me margaret is that you where are you bound to to nowhere but your own house that is if you'll take me in i've a job of work to finish to-night morning as must be in time for the funeral to-morrow and grandfather has been out moss-hunting and will not be home till late oh how charming it will be i'll help you if you're backward have you much to do yes i only got the order yesterday at noon and there's three girls besides the mother and what with trying on and matching the stuff for there was not enough in the piece they chose first i'm above a bit behindhand i've the skirts all to make i kept that work till candlelight 
and the sleeves to say nothing of little bits to the bodies, for the missus is very particular, and I could scarce keep from smiling while they were crying so, really taking on sadly, I'm sure, to hear first one and then to other clear up to notice the set of her gown. They weren't to be misfits, I promise you, though they were in such trouble. Well, Margaret, you're right welcome, as you know, and I'll sit down and help you with pleasure, though I was tired enough of sewing to-night at Miss Simmons. By this time Mary had broken up the raking coal, and lighted her candle, and Margaret settled herself to work on one side of the table, while her friend hurried over her tea at the other. The things were then lifted en masse to the dresser, and dusting her side of the table with the apron she always wore at home, Mary took up some breaths and began to run them together. "'Who's it all for? For if you've told me, I've forgotten. Why, it's Mrs. Ogden, as keeps the green grocer shop in Oxford Road. Her husband drank himself to death, and though she cried over him and his ways all the time he was alive, she's fretted sadly, for now he's dead.' "'Has he left her much to go upon?' asked Mary, examining the, the texture of the dress. "'This is beautifully fine, soft bombazine. "'No, I'm much afeard there's but little, and there's several young children besides the three Miss Ogdens. "'I should have thought girls like them would have made their own gowns,' observed Mary. "'So I dare say they do, many a one, but now they seem all so busy getting ready for the funeral, for it's to be quite a grand affair, well-nigh twenty people to breakfast, as one of the little ones told me. The little thing seemed to like the fuss, and I do believe it comforted poor Miss Ogden to make all the piece of work. Such a smell of ham boiling and fowls roasting, while I waited in the kitchen, it seemed more like a wedding, nor a funeral.' They said she'd spend a matter of sixty pounds on the burial. "'I thought you said she was but badly off,' said Mary. "'Aye, I know she's asked for credit at several places, saying her husband laid hands on every farthing he could get for drink. But the undertakers urge her on, you see, and tell her this thing's usual, and that thing's only a common mark of respect, and that everybody has to other, till the poor woman has no will of her own.' I dare say, too, her heart strikes her. It always does when a person's gone, for many a word and many a slighting deed to him who's stiff and cold, and she thinks to make up matters, as it were, by a grand funeral, though she and all her children, too, may have to pinch many a year to pay the expenses, if ever they pay them at all. This morning, too, will cost a pretty penny, said Mary. I often wonder why folks wear mourning. It's not pretty or becoming, and it costs a deal of money, just when people can spare at least. And if what the Bible tells us be true, we ought not to be sorry when a friend who's been good goes to his rest. And as for a bad man, one's glad enough to get shut on him. I cannot see what good comes a wearing mourning. I'll tell you what I think the fancy was sent for. Old Alice calls everything sent for, and I believe she's right. It does do good, though not as much as it costs, that I do believe. In setting people, as is cast down by sorrow and feels themselves unable to settle to anything but crying, something to do. Why, now I told you how they were grieving, for perhaps he was a kind husband and father, in his thoughtless way, when he wasn't in liquor. But they cheered up wonderful while I was there, and I asked him for more directions than usual. 
that they might have something to talk over and fix about, and I left them my fashion-book, though it were two months old, just a purpose. I don't think every one would grieve a that way. Old Alice wouldn't. Old Alice is one in a thousand. I doubt, too, if she would fret much, however sorry she might be. She would say it were sent, and fall to trying to find out what good it were to do. Every sorrow in her mind is sent for good. Did I ever tell you, Mary, what she said one day, when she found me taking on about something? No, do tell. What were you fretting about, first place? I can't tell you just now. Perhaps I may sometime. When? Perhaps this very evening, if it rises in my heart, perhaps never. It's a fear that sometimes I can't abide to think about, and sometimes I don't like to think on anything else. Well, I was fretting about this fear, and Alice comes in for something and finds me crying. I would not tell her, no more than I would you, Mary. So she says, Well, dear, you must mind this. When you're going to fret and be low about anything, an anxious mind is never a holy mind. Oh, Mary, I have so often checked my grumbling since she said that. The weary sound of stitching was the only sound heard for a little while, till Mary inquired, do you expect to get paid for this morning? Why, I do not much think I shall. I've thought it over once or twice, and I mean to bring myself to think I shan't, and to like to do it as my bit towards comforting them. I don't think they can pay, and yet they're just the sort of folk to have their minds easier for wearing mourning. There's only one thing I dislike making black for. It does so hurt the eyes." Margaret put down her work with a sigh, and shaded her eyes. Then she assumed a cheerful tone, and said, "'You'll not have to wait long, Mary, for my secret's on the tip of my tongue. Mary, do you know I sometimes think I'm growing a little blind? And then what would become of Grandfather and me? Oh, God help me! Lord help me!' She fell into an agony of tears, while Mary knelt by her, striving to soothe and to comfort her but like an inexperienced person, striving rather to deny the correctness of Margaret's fear than helping her to meet and overcome the evil. No, said Margaret, quietly fixing her tearful eyes on Mary, I know I'm not mistaken. I have felt one going some time, long before I ever thought what it would lead to, and last autumn I went to a doctor, and he did not mince the matter, but said unless I sat in a darkened room with my hands before me, my sight would not last me many years longer. But how could I do that, Mary? For one thing, Grandfather would have known there was somewhat the matter, and, oh, it will grieve him sore whenever he's told, so the later the better, and besides, Mary, we've sometimes little enough to go upon, and what I earn is a great help, for Grandfather takes a day here and a day there, for botanizing or going after insects, and he'll think little enough of four or five shillings for a specimen. Dear Grandfather, and I'm so loath to think he should be stinted of what gives him such pleasure. So I went to another doctor to try and get him to say something different, and he said, Oh, it's only weakness and give me a bottle of lotion. But I've used three bottles, and each of them cost two shillings, and my eye is so much worse, not hurting so much, but I can't see a bit with it. There now, Mary, continued she, shutting one eye, now you only look like a great black shadow, with the edges dancing and sparkling. And can you see pretty well with the other? 
yes pretty near as well as ever the only difference is that if i sew a long time together a bright spot like the sun comes right where i'm looking all the rest is quite clear but just where i want to see i've been to both doctors again and now they're both of the same story and i suppose i'm going dark as fast as may be plain work pays so bad and mourning has been so plentiful this winter that i were tempted to take in any black work i could and now i'm suffering from it and yet margaret you're going on taking it in that's what you'd call foolish in another it is mary and yet what can i do folk mun live and i think i should go blind anyway and i daren't tell grandfather else i would leave it off but he will so fret margaret knocked herself backward and forward to still her emotion oh mary she said i try to get his face off by heart and i stare at him so when he's not looking and then shut my eyes to see if i can remember his dear face there's one thing mary that serves a bit to comfort me you'll have heard of old jacob butterworth the singing weaver well i knowed him a bit so i went to him and said how i wished he'd teach me the right way of singing and he says i've a rare fine voice and i go once a week and take a lesson from him he's been a grand singer in his day he led the choruses at the festivals and got thanked many a time by london folk and one foreign singer madame catalani turned round and shook him by the hand before the old church full of people he says i may gain ever so much money by singing but i don't know any rate it's sad work being blind she took up her sewing saying her eyes were rested now and for some time they sewed on in silence suddenly there were steps heard in the little paved court person after person ran past the curtained window something's up said mary she went to the door and stopped the first person she saw inquired the cause of the commotion eh wench don't you see the firelight carson's mill is blazing away like fun and away her informant ran come margaret on with your bonnet and let's go to see carson's mill it's a fire and they say a burning mill is such a grand sight i never saw one well i think it's a fearful sight besides i've all this work to do but mary coaxed her in her sweet manner and with her gentle caresses promising to help with the gowns all night long if necessary nay saying she should quite enjoy it the truth was margaret's secret weighed heavily and painfully on her mind and she felt her inability to comfort besides she wanted to change the current of margaret's thoughts and in addition to these unselfish feelings came the desire she had honestly expressed of seeing a factory fire so in two minutes they were ready at the threshold of the house they met john barton to whom they told their errand carson's mill ay there is a mill on fire somewhere sure enough by the light and it will be a rare blaze for there's not a drop o water to be got and much carson will care for they're well insured and the machines are the old-fashioned kind see if they don't think it a fine thing for themselves they'll not thank them as tries to put it out he gave way for the impatient girls to pass guided by the ruddy light more than by any exact knowledge of the streets that led to the mill they scampered along with bent heads facing the terrible east wind as best they might carson's mill ran lengthwise from east to west along it went one of the oldest thoroughfares in manchester 
Indeed, all that part of town was comparatively old. It was there that the first cotton mills were built, and the crowded alleys and back streets of the neighborhood made a fire there particularly to be dreaded. The staircase of the mill ascended from the entrance at the western end, which faced into a wide, dingy-looking street, consisting principally of public houses, pawnbrokers, shops, rag-and-bone warehouses, and dirty provision shops. The other, the east end of the factory, fronted into a very narrow back street, not twenty feet wide, and miserably lighted and paved. Right against this end of the factory were the gable ends of the last house in the principal street, a house which from its size, its handsome stone facings, and the attempt at ornament in the front, had probably once been a gentleman's house but now the light which streamed from its enlarged front windows made clear the interior of the splendidly fitted-up room. With its painted walls, its pillared recesses, its gilded and gorgeous fittings up, its miserable squalid inmates, it was a gin palace. Mary almost wished herself away, so fearful, as Margaret had said, was the sight when they had joined the crowd assembled to witness the fire. There was a murmur of many voices whenever the roaring of the flames ceased for an instant. It was easy to perceive the mass were deeply interested. "'What do they say?' asked Margaret of a neighbour in the town, as she caught a few words, clear and distinct, from the general murmur. "'There never is any one in the mill, surely!' exclaimed Mary, as the sea of upward-turned faces moved with one accord to the eastern end, looking into Dunham Street, the narrow back lane already mentioned." The western end of the mill, whither the raging flames were driven by the wind, was crowned and turreted with triumphant fire. It sent forth its infernal tongues from every window-hole, licking the black walls with amorphous fierceness. It was swayed or fell before the mighty gale, only to rise higher and yet higher, to ravage and roar yet more wildly. This part of the roof fell in with an astounding crash, while the crowd struggled more and more to press into Dunham Street for what were magnificent, terrible flames, what were falling timbers or tottering walls in comparison with human life. There, where the devouring flames had been repelled by yet more powerful wind, but where yet black smoke gushed out from every aperture, there, at one of the windows on the fourth story, or rather a doorway where a crane was fixed to hoist up goods, might occasionally be seen, when the thick gusts of smoke cleared partially away for an instant, the imploring figures of two men. They had remained after the rest of the workmen for some reason or other, and owing to the wind having driven the fire in the opposite direction, had perceived no sight or sound of alarm, till long after— if anything could be called long in the throng of terrors which passed by in less than half an hour, the fire had consumed the old wooden staircase at the other end of the building. I am not sure whether it was not the first sound of the rushing crowd below that made them fully aware of their awful position. "'Where are the engines?' asked Margaret of her neighbour. "'They're coming, no doubt, but bless you. I think it's bare ten minutes since we first found out the fire. It rages so with this wind, and all so dry-like.' is no one gone for a ladder gasped mary as the men were perceptibly though not audibly praying the great multitude below for help ay wilson's son and another man were off like a shot well nigh five minutes ago but the masons and slaters and such like have left their work and locked up the yards 
Wilson, then, was that man whose figure loomed out against the ever-increasing dull, hot light behind, whenever the smoke was clear. Was that George Wilson? Mary sickened with terror. She knew he worked for Carson's, but at first she had had no idea that any lives were in danger, and since she had become aware of this, the heated air, the roaring flames, the dizzy light, and the agitated and murmuring crowd had bewildered her thoughts. "'Oh, let us go home, Margaret. I cannot stay.' we cannot go see how we are wedged in by folks poor mary you won't hanker after another fire hark listen for through the hushed crowd pressing round the angle of the mill and filling up dunham street might be heard the rattle of the engine the heavy quick tread of loaded horses thank god said margaret's neighbour the engines come another pause the plugs were stiff and the water could not be got then there was a pressure through the crowd, the front rows bearing back on those behind, till the girls were sick with the close ramming confinement, then a relaxation, and a breathing freely once more. "'Twas young Wilson and a fireman with a ladder,' said Margaret's neighbour, a tall man who could overlook the crowd. "'Oh, tell us what you see,' begged Mary. "'They've gotten it fixed against the gin-shop wall. One of the men in the factory has fell back, dazed with smoke, I warrant.' The floor's not given way there. God, said he, bringing his eye lower down, the ladder's too short. It's over with them, poor chaps. The fire's comin' slow and sure to that end, and afore they're given gettin' water or another ladder, they'll be dead out and out. Lord have mercy on them. A sob as if of excited women was heard in the hush of the crowd. Another pressure like the former, Mary clung to Margaret's arm with a pinching grasp, and longed to faint and be insensible, to escape from the oppressing misery of her sensations, a minute or two. "'They've taken the ladder to the temple of Apollo. Can't press back with it to the yard it came from.' A mighty shout arose, a sound to wake the dead. Up on high, quivering in the air, was seen the end of the ladder, protruding out of a garret window in the gable end of the gin palace, nearly opposite to the doorway where the men had been seen. Those in the crowd nearest to the factory, and consequently best able to see up to the garret window, said that several men were holding one end and guiding by their weight its passage to the doorway the garret window frame had been taken out before the crowd below were aware of the attempt at length for it seemed long measured by beating hearts though scarce two minutes had elapsed the ladder was fixed an aerial bridge at a dizzying height across the narrow street every eye was fixed in unwinking anxiety and people's very breathing seemed stilled in suspense the men were nowhere to be seen but the wind appeared for the moment higher than ever, and drove back the invading flames to the other end. Mary and Margaret could see now. Right above them danced the ladder in the wind. The crowd pressed back from under. Firemen's helmets appeared at the window, holding the ladder firm, when one man, with quick, steady tread and unmoving head, passed from one side to the other. The multitude did not even whisper while he crossed the perilous bridge, which quivered under him. But when he was across, safe comparatively in the factory, a cheer arose for an instant. 
checked, however, almost immediately by the uncertainty of the result, and the desire not in any way to shake the nerves of the brave fellow who had cast his life on such a die. "'There he is again!' sprung to the lips of many, as they saw him at the doorway, standing as if for an instant to breathe a mouthful of fresher air, before he trusted himself to cross. On his shoulders he bore an insensible body. "'It's Jem Wilson and his father!' whispered Margaret, but Mary knew it before. The people were sick with anxious terror. He could no longer balance himself with his arms. Everything must depend on nerve and eye. They saw the ladder fixed by the position of the head, which never wavered. The ladder shook under the double weight, but still he never moved his head. He dared not look below. It seemed an age before the crossing was accomplished. At last the window was gained, and the bearer relieved from his burden. Both had disappeared. Then the multitude might shout, and above the roaring flames, louder than the blowing of the mighty wind, arose that tremendous burst of applause at the success of the daring enterprise. Then a shrill cry was heard, asking, "'Is the old man alive and likely to do?' "'Aye,' answered one of the firemen to the hushed crowd below. "'He's coming round finally. Now he's had a dash of cold water.' He drew back his head, and the eager inquiries, the shouts, the sea-like murmurs of the moving, rolling mass began again to be heard, but only for an instant. In far less time than even that in which I have endeavoured briefly to describe the pause of events— the same bold hero stepped again across the ladder, with evident purpose to rescue the man yet remaining in the burning mill. He went across in the same quick, steady manner as before, and the people below, made less acutely anxious by his previous success, were talking to each other, shouting out intelligence of the progress of the fire at the other end of the factory telling of the endeavours of the firemen at that part to obtain water while the closely packed body of men heaved and rolled from side to side it was different from the former silent breathless hush i do not know if it were from this cause or from the recollection of peril past or that he looked below in the breathing moment before returning with the remaining person a slight little man slung across his shoulders but jem wilson's step was less steady his tread more uncertain. He seemed to feel with his foot for the next rung, the ladder, to waver, and finally to stop half-way. By this time the crowd was still enough, and the awful instant that intervened no one durst speak, even to encourage. Many turned sick with terror and shut their eyes to avoid seeing the catastrophe they dreaded. It came. The brave man swayed from side to side, at first as slightly as if only balancing himself, but he was evidently losing nerve, and even sense. It was only wonderful how the animal instinct of self-preservation did not overcome every generous feeling, and impel him at once to drop the helpless, inanimate body he carried. Perhaps the same instinct told him that the sudden loss of so heavy a weight would of itself be a great and imminent danger. "'Help me! She's fainted!' cried Margaret, but no one heeded. All eyes were directed upwards. At this point of time a rope with a running nose was dexterously thrown by one of the firemen, after the manner of a lasso, over the head and round the bodies of the two men. True, it was with rude and slight adjustment, but slight as it was, it served as a steady guide. It encouraged the sinking heart, the dizzy head. 
Once more Jem stepped onwards. He was not hurried by any jerk or pull. Slowly and gradually the rope was hauled in. Slowly and gradually did he make the four or five paces between him and safety. The window was gained, and all were saved. The multitude in the street absolutely danced with triumph and huzzed and yelled, till you would have fancied their very throats would crack, and then with all the fickleness characteristic of a large body of people, pressed and stumbled and cursed and swore in the hurry to get out of Dunham Street and back to the immediate scene of the fire, the mighty diapason of whose roaring flames formed an awful accompaniment to the screams and yells and imprecations of the struggling crowd. As they pressed away, Margaret was left pale and almost sinking under the weight of Mary's body, which she had preserved in an upright position by keeping her arms tight around Mary's waist, dreading, with reason, the trampling of unheeding feet. Now, however, she gently let her down on the cold, clean pavement, and the change of posture and the difference in temperature, now that the people had withdrawn from their close neighborhood, speedily restored her to consciousness. Her first glance was bewildered and uncertain. She had forgotten where she was. Her cold, hard bed felt strange. The murky glare in the sky affrighted her. She shut her eyes to think, to recollect. Her next look was upwards. The fearful bridge had been withdrawn. The window was unoccupied. "'They are safe,' said Margaret. "'All? Are all safe, Margaret?' asked Mary. Ask yon fireman, and he'll tell you more about it than I can, but I know they're all safe. The fireman hastily corroborated Margaret's words. Why did you let Jem Wilson go twice? asked Margaret. Let? Why, we could not hinder him. As soon as ever he'd heard his father speak, which he was not long a-doin', Jem were off like a shot, only saying he knowed better nor us where to find t'other man. We'd all ha' gone if he had not been in such a hurry, for no one can say as Manchester fireman is ever backward when there's danger. So saying, he ran off, and the two girls, without remark or discussion, turned homewards. They were overtaken by the elder Wilson, pale, grimy, and blear-eyed, but apparently as strong and well as ever. He loitered a minute or two alongside of them, giving an account of his detention in the mill. Then he hastily wished them good-night, saying he must go home and tell his missus he was all safe and well, but after he had gone a few steps, he turned back, came on Mary's side of the payment, and in an earnest whisper, which Margaret could not avoid hearing, he said, "'Mary, if my boy comes across you to-night, give him a kind word or two for my sake. Do bless you. There's a good wench.' Mary hung her head and answered not a word, and in an instant he was gone. When they arrived at home, he found John Barton smoking his pipe, unwilling to question, yet very willing to hear all the details they could give him. Margaret went over the whole story, and it was amusing to watch his gradually increasing interest and excitement. First the regular puffing abated, then ceased, then the pipe was fairly taken out of his mouth and held suspended. Then he rose. At every further point he came a step nearer to the narrator. When it was ended he swore, an unusual thing for him, that if Jem Wilson wanted Mary he should have her to-morrow, if he had not a penny to keep her. 
Margaret laughed, but Mary, who was now recovered from her agitation, pouted and looked angry. The work which they had left was resumed, but with full hearts fingers never go very quickly, and I am sorry to say that, owing to the fire, the two younger Miss Ogdens were in such grief for the loss of their excellent father that they were unable to appear before the little circle of sympathizing friends gathered together to comfort the widow, and see the funeral set off. End of chapter 5